0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
0: Thanks, Tammy. Appreciate that. So uh, every now and then, pastors will get really encouraging uh, emails uh, from people who are, are part of their churches. And I got one of those emails last week. It was actually just yesterday uh, from a woman who was just expressing her gratitude for our community at Christ Prez. Um, about the welcome that she's experienced, about how much the music speaks to her, uh, intergenerational dynamic where you've got, you know, grandmas and grandpas as well as kids and everyone in between sort of humming around, living in community together, the focus on Scripture, the focus on the centrality of Christ, our desire to serve our city through various avenues of mission. uh, And there was just this beautiful... uh, email that uh, I just said, you know, this has to be a keeper, this has to be one that I return back to for my own encouragement. Uh, and then this morning we have Membership Sunday where we, between our two locations, our two worship locations, uh, we've received today, uh, we do this every quarter, but today we've received 77 new members and 13 baptisms of, of both young and older. And um, What I want to say to excited, enthusiastic new members, as well as those who who send these really encouraging, gushing emails, is thank you, and there's going to come a time when the honeymoon gets disrupted, because this is the church, after all. And the longer any of us keeps these five vows that we witnessed, uh, the new members Uh, Making today. The longer any of us keeps those vows, the more joyful memories we're going to accumulate and the more painful memories we are going to accumulate. You know, Thomas Merton, uh, it is said, did not allow his sons to go to church because he did not want to make atheists of them. I've heard the same thing about Bertrand Russell's book, Why I'm Not a Christian. There have actually been many people who have become Christian as a result of reading Why I'm Not a Christian. And in the same way, Merton would say there are many who have walked away from Christianity, not uh, in spite of what they experienced in local churches, but because of it. And this is actually uh, the senior devil screw tapes strategy that he passes on to his young mentee. Uh, the junior devil named Wormwood, and Wormwood is working on his subject, and his subject is a new convert to Christianity, and the goal is to draw him away from Christ, draw him away from the things of God, and win him back. And what Screwtape says in his second letter to the junior devil is this, get your subject to church that's our strategy for winning him back. Provided that people sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. And then here we have the writer of Ecclesiastes saying something that feels opposite to this. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. As we unpack the meaning of this one statement through the broader context of the text, it's clear that he means this, be careful, because no matter how disenchanted you may become with the church, it is the bride of Jesus Christ that we're talking about. And so today what I'd like to do is make a case for being discipled by what Ecclesiastes says to us, by what Jesus and the apostles say to us about the local church instead of being discipled by screw tape. Who by the way is a devil. And the devil loves to help us hate the bride of Jesus. So, I want to talk about the hate relationship that we have to guard against, as well as the love relationship that we are invited to protect and cultivate with respect to the local church. So, first, let's talk about the hate relationship that we have to guard against. There there, there are three things that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us to consider when we go to the house of God. The first is the call to Loyalty. We're going to be most tested. Our loyalty is going to be most tested, not during the honeymoon joining phase, but during the more difficult and maybe more mundane and boring and uninspiring seasons of our relationship with the local church. And so, for loyalty's sake, the writer says in three verses total, be mindful of your vows. It is better not to make a vow at all than to make one and then renege, because God is a God of truth. You know, I do a lot of… I've done a lot of weddings, officiated a lot of weddings over the years, and I always encourage couples, please, please just use the traditional vows. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is You are not the poet that you think you are, and I want to spare you the embarrassment. But number two, so many modern vows that we write ourselves have more to do with how we feel about each other now than what we will be for each other when things get difficult, when the marriage takes a downturn. See, because the traditional vows… The focus is not on what you feel right now, you know, that loving feeling, I feel for you, I think I love you. No, it's more the the Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield seasons that the writer has in mind here. The traditional vows call husband and wife to commit to one another when things inevitably get hard down the line, for better and for worse for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And so he says, when you go, when you go, there's an assumption that we're here and we're engaged, we're present, and we're going to stay. When you go to the house of God, keep your vows. One of the vows that was made was, you promise to support the church and its worship and its work to the very best of your ability. That conveys presence, a promise of presence and a promise of relational contribution, contributing to the environment of hospitality, contributing to the culture of encouragement and such. So Anne Rice, the famous vampire novelist, uh, became a Christian because of how well Christians treated her. She was surprised because she'd heard all of these rumors about Christians being unsavory people. And she says, I lost my faith in the non-existence of God. She'd been an atheist before. I lost my faith in the non-existence of God by virtue of the kindness and non-judgment that I experienced from Christian people. That was the honeymoon phase. And then ten years later, she wrote an essay about how she is not leaving Jesus, but she is leaving the local church. And in that essay, she writes this, Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile disputatious, deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. In the name of Christ, I am quitting Christianity. So I have been a minister for… a Christian for 27 years, a minister for about 21, and I resonate sometimes with these felt words. I resonate with both stories that Anne Rice told, the one about how she loved the church and the one about how the church was so difficult for her. You know, in my twenty-seven years of being a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing has been more life-giving, nothing has been more centering, nothing has been more necessary for my flourishing than the local church, and nothing has been more painful than experiences I've had with local churches. Speaking of weddings, did you know that the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, was not written for wedding ceremonies? Doesn't mean you're wrong for having it in your wedding ceremony, but that's only a secondary application. The primary application is, hey, Corinthians, let me tell you about everything that you're not. Because you're suing each other, you're divorcing each other without cause, you have major divisions over minor theological quibbles, you're committing adultery, you're 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 instituting frivolous lawsuits against each other, you're parading your Christian liberty in front of those with tender consciences, you're neglecting the poor. So, love is patient, love is kind, love is so and so and on, so and on, so and on, so on. You're none of that. It's one of the sharpest rebukes in the whole Bible, this love chapter. And yet, Paul begins the very same letter with these words. You're the church. You're the bride. You're the holy ones. You're set apart. You're beloved. You are my sisters and brothers, sanctified in Christ. You belong. So, Bonhoeffer, based on Dynamics like this from the Apostle Paul that instead of piecing out, he presses in with the messy church. Bonhoeffer's counterpoint to Screwtape from Life Together was this, Christian community is a gift of God. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God." The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. It's another way of saying this. For the church, Jesus comes as a physician, not as a prosecutor. Jesus comes as a husband, not a a boyfriend. And our perspective on these things will make all the difference as to whether or not we guard our steps reverently when we approach the wife of Jesus. If the local church is good enough for Jesus, but not good enough for me. Can I possibly be a Christian? If you reject my wife, I will not be your friend. If you are against her, you are against me, and I am against you. Guard your steps. Receptivity is the second one, right after loyalty. And it's a call not to just be present, not to just show up, but to be attentive in God's house. This isn't me saying, you listen to me. This is me saying, us, (laughs) let's listen to Him. Let's zero in. You know, the, the most important Part of our service is not the one that we're in right now. The most important one was the one that came right before this one when we heard directly from the word of the Lord, as Tammy read to us Be attentive, put up your iPhone, shut it off, show up, and be fully present here rather than being fully present elsewhere. Is the call. When, verse 7, when dreams increase, there is vanity. The, the, the Hebrew word here means daydreams. You know, sometimes I will be in conversation with people who love me and people who are in life with me, and they will be saying something to me and they will stop me in, in mid-sentence of what they're saying and ask me, what did I just say? What are you thinking about right now? And then I'll, I'll try to repeat, you know, I'll, I'll put on the defenses, and, and, and I'll try to repeat back to them what they just said, and I'll get about 17% of it right because I'm only 17% present. The other 83% of me is zeroed in on tomorrow's tasks, the problems I want to fix, the emails I want to deal with, and the goals that I want to chase after. There is toil in my heart. And so I'll give you 17% of me right now so that I can also deal with my toil. Remember last week, if you were here, um, we talked about how Ecclesiastes presents to us the notion of all of us having two hands, and every day one hand should be full of work and one hand should be full of quietness, one full of toil, one full of Sabbath, except for one day of the week, the Lord's Day. This day, where both hands are meant to be filled with quietness, and neither hand is meant to be filled with toil. Toil in the heart negates receptivity. And then the third thing that is given to us is a reluctance to opine. Verse 3, let your words be few when you approach the house of God. In other words, we are meant to be disciples, not critics. You know, for every glowing email that pastors get, like the one I referenced before, um, there are about 20 that say opposite things. And that's okay, because among those 20 are actually obedient believers who are carefully paying attention to the Scriptures that that, that say, share all good things with your teachers. Help them do their job of shepherding and leading in an even better way. And so there is sort of a a reverse preaching that is meant to happen in the church where the shepherds are ministered to and, and corrected when necessary and led in even more fruitful paths by those that they lead, because shepherds are sheep as well. So that's when we share all good things, but then there are also other communications that share all grumpy things. It represents an amnesia when we feel that we have to point out and fault find, you know, every fault that we can find, that we are approaching God's house here. It's not your name that's on this house. It is not your preferences that are supposed to define it. It's God's name. And here is the dynamic among opiners. It's called church hopping. And, And you can almost spell out the narrative, I'm here and I love this church, pastor. I didn't like the music where I come from. I wasn't being fed. I don't know anybody there. I left, and for four whole weeks, nobody called me. Well, who did the leaving? Who demonstrated that they don't want to talk to who? And this presents a dynamic, if I may dare say it, of 10 year old grown ups and 83 year old children in local churches in cultures where we change churches every two or three years. And whenever I get that narrative, I know that the clock is already ticking. The honeymoon's going to be over soon, and you're going to be saying the same things about us to the next church as you are right now about your last one. It's the ten-year-olds who are the grown-ups because their parents have said we are going to treat the church as a family, not as a consumer good. Which means when it's boring, we're going to stay. Which means when things get hard, we're going to try to contribute to the reconciliation process. You see? And kids, over time, they learn. Loyalty matters. As opposed to what Lewis Calls the connoisseur and taster of churches. Screw tape again to his junior devil mentee. Surely you know if a man cannot be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him out all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster and connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic, where the enemy, God, wants to make Him a pupil. What Jesus wants for His bride is more pupils and disciples and fewer consumers and critics. Find a church, pick one, this one or another one, and stay. Stay. I'm not saying it's never legitimate to find a new church if If there are toxic dynamics, if there's unaccountable leadership in a toxic environment, if there's a departure from biblical orthodoxy, sometimes we really do have to consider something new. But for the opiner in us who is inclined to change communities every two or three years, we never become as mature as the ten-year-old who's been at one place for all of his or her life with respect to the wife of Jesus. don't like the music? It's not for you. It's for somebody else. It's for God. I love you. I really do. I love you. Sting. The love relationship we must protect and cultivate. This is the fun part, but it's not fun yet because the first thing he says is, know your place. You look at verses 2 and 3 and you, you sense a very casual, almost sauntering approach to God's house. Just kind of swag in any time that's convenient for me. Blase faire Rash with our mouths, he says. Foolish with our sacrifices. Hasty with our words. Daydreaming with cluttered minds. The answer to this, he says again, is guard your steps. Have some reverence. Verse 7, fear God. Remember that it is God you are approaching, and He is still holy. Fear and trembling is still an appropriate response to the nature and character of God. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God, same guy. He doesn't change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And part of what He has been always is the God who struck down the two priests, Nadab and Abihu, for offering strange fire. He's the same God about whom the man Manoah said to his wife, "Prepare to die because we've seen a glimpse of the Lord." He's the same God about whom Isaiah said, "I am wrecked and ruined because I've seen the Lord." The same God to whom Peter in the New Testament said, "Go away from me, Lord, from a sinful man." The same God who in the New Testament struck down and struck dead Ananias and Sapphira for being casual about their vows and not following through with them. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with His glory always. And yet, the answer to this is draw near to Him. Yeah, right. Draw near to Him. Good on you. Verse 1, to draw near, to listen. It's better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, when we fear God appropriately, there's never anything to be afraid of when we enter into His presence. The truth of the matter is, we should all be dead because of our broken vows. It wasn't just little Shiloh that ran from the baptism waters this morning. It's all of us who run from the baptism waters every day of our lives. And so God gives us things like the 22nd Psalm, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, of the congregation. I will praise you. And we, we assume this is from David because it is, but it's also from Jesus who quoted the same psalm, the son of David, on the cross when He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those two statements, telling of the glory of God in and among the congregation, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that there could be a congregation so that there could be a gathering of messy, incomplete works in process. In Jesus, all sins are forgiven, including our sins of failed worship, which is the best reason to worship. We come to Him because of grace, not because of terror, because the terror has been dealt with. It says in Ephesians 2, a book about the church, that Jesus Himself is our peace. He is our relief from the war that was there between a holy God and a sinful humanity. Jesus is our peace, and on the cross and in His resurrection, He destroyed the barriers that were there, brought down the dividing wall of hostility between heaven and earth, and by virtue of that, there's also a horizontal application between people and people including Jews and Gentiles, who couldn't have been more different ideologically, sociologically, economically, ethnically, politically, and so on. You're one in Christ Jesus, y'all. To be one with God is to be one with one another. To be a friend of Jesus is to be a friend of the bride. 2007, the Washington Post came out with this article about the Grammy award-winning violinist Joshua Bell. Maybe some of you have actually played with him, he's he's masterful. And Joshua Bell decided one day to play his violin incognito in the uh, subways of Washington, D.C. And so he he, he put on, he kind of disguised himself, put on a ball cap and some ratty jeans and carried his three-and-a-half-million-dollar Stradivarius violin into the subways and began to do his thing. And what the article says is that 1,100 people passed by and only seven of them stopped to listen and to take it in and to savor the gift that they were being given by this shabby clothed man playing a three and a half million dollar instrument, playing ten and a half million dollar music. What if Joshua Bell is a metaphor for the local church, where thousands and thousands and thousands pass by all the time, but only a few stop in and get the opportunity to savor the music that's being made there? What if, in addition to that, it's a metaphor, Joshua Bell is a metaphor for Jesus Himself, who came to us in a shabby exterior, not in a tuxedo, That was his wedding garment, despised and rejected, nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. And yet, he came as a master artist because Joshua Bell is also a metaphor about us, the bride of Christ, and each member of us, the bride of Christ. Again, in that church-focused epistle, Ephesians, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus is the master artist and we are His workmanship, or literally, we are His poema, His poetry. How about that? What if we, yes, we, the church, this sometimes weak, trifling, quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, deservedly infamous group who sing out of tune and have boots that squeak and double chins, and odd clothes, what if we are the great and glorious community of God? Because as Bonhoeffer said, what may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. May we not miss it. May we be among the seven who stop to listen to the shabby-clothed master play his masterpiece, only to discover that we are part of that masterpiece. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray that you will have that same confidence with respect to me. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, as the kids return and as the servers come forward, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for the table that we're about to approach with the knowledge that you have already approached us and wed yourself to us. This table is a reminder of another table that is yet to come, the table of feasting at the wedding feast of the Lamb where you will be the bridegroom and we will be your perfected bride. Father, in the meantime, teach us loyalty, teach us receptivity, and teach us a reluctance to opine. Unless it's truly fruitful and truly life giving, save us from the grump within. May it never be said of us that we were tasters and connoisseurs of churches, because that's not what you are, Lord. You didn't come to be the church's boyfriend, you came to be the church's husband. And in the church, You want fewer consumers and critics and more pupils and disciples. And what a privilege it is not to sit at a preacher's feet, the preacher is a sheep like everyone else, but to sit at yours, at your table. And it's in the hope of the gospel, and in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.